Well, I'm glad you're all here, especially a welcome to, uh, to guests and visitors. Um, I want to start off with a little bit of history lesson. You know a lot of this history. Um, the Declaration of Independence, we declared our, our independence from England and signed that document, that declaration, on July 4, 1776. The Revolutionary War just lasted just over seven years. And during that time, we were under a document called the Articles of Confederation. It was very unlike our Constitution now. It was weak. It was very weak for several reasons. Uh, first, the smaller states were concerned about getting overwhelmed by the larger states. The southern states didn't trust the northern states. These differences made a weak alliance, which just about crippled the war effort. If it were not for General George Washington, a man who kept the Continental Army together, we would not have our independence now. The Continental Congress commissioned Washington because they trusted him. The Army followed him because they trusted him. We had an ineffective government because we didn't trust each other. At the end of the war, the Army, both commissioned and non-commissioned officers, were very angry at Congress. They had not fulfilled almost any of their promises. And they were making a play to make Washington king because they trusted him. So history tells us that Washington found out about this plot. And he walked into a room, a very large room, full of all of his senior officers, generals, colonels, majors. And they were all gathering, talking about this move that they wanted to make. And upon his entering the room, you could hear a pin drop. All of his leaders were there in a treacherous, treasonous meeting. Their leader met them in there. What was Washington going to do? Well, he went to the front of the room and he started to address his men. He told them how grateful he was that he was able to lead them through this campaign. How grateful to God that he was that they were successful. And he was thankful for the, the, uh, the campaign that they had been in for freedom and for um, democracy. What a great thing to have fought for. And then he did something very interesting. He reached into his pocket to get a letter from Congress. He slowly opened it up. Everyone waited to hear what was on it. And as he looked at it, he paused. And then he reached into his other pocket for his glasses. And he put them on and he said, gentlemen, I'm sorry, but in my service to my country, not only have I become gray, but I've also become almost blind. That sentence, in that one sentence, Washington became vulnerable. He showed himself to be frail. He humbled himself before his men. They saw him in a light that they'd never seen him before. Some began to tear up. That sentence changed the course of history and ended all talk of ending the, the, a play for a dictatorship. It made it very clear. They knew not only what Washington was saying, but what he was saying about what they were doing. And they stopped. Washington was not perfect, far from it. But he was a humble man. 
And that humility protected, uh, protected this country from returning to what they had so valiantly fought to leave. Humility is the embodiment of wisdom. So let's open the book of wisdom and learn what Proverbs has to say about humility. So the title of this message is My Father's Lap or My Father's Throne. The reason for that title will become more evident later. The big idea is Proverbs reveals the mind and the heart of God about humility, uh, about pride and humility to protect us and to bless us. So let's pray. Lord, our eyes are darkened and our hearts are cold. And we need you, Lord, to open our eyes and to soften our eyes, our hearts for your message, for the seed that you're going to plant. And Lord, for you to yield that fruit in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start. We're going to start at the beginning of Proverbs. We're going to start and talk about the author and the purpose of Proverbs. Um, it's subtitled, God wrote the book of Proverbs as a father writing instructions to, his, to the child that he loves. Proverbs 1.9, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wisdom and wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the young, to the youth, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and the man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. So these nine verses I've kind of cut up into three different um, sections. The first six verses I'm going to call the executive summary about the book of Proverbs. Verse 7 is the cornerstone of the book. It's kind of the main idea. And verse 8 and 9 give us the why. It gives us the author and his purpose. So let's look at the executive summary. Verse 1 is like the title page, okay, so to speak. It's, it's, this is the book. It's Proverbs, and the author is Solomon. And in the next five verses, we see a laundry list of words that we see that are themes throughout the book of Proverbs. Wisdom, instruction, righteousness, justice, equity, prudence, discretion, learning, understanding. Then we get to verse 7. This is the big idea. The wisest man who ever walked the earth to date at that time had captured wisdom in 31 chapters, and he was about to give it to us. The wise seek it out, the foolish don't. Well, worse than that, the foolish despise it. So I don't want to overwork a theme that we've looked at for the last month, but Solomon divides up the world into two different people, people who pursue wisdom and people who don't. The people who do pursue wisdom he calls wise. The people who avoid it he calls fools. Solomon defines that distinction because he's about to take off his teacher's hat and he's about to put on his father's hat. In verse 8, we hear the cry of the father's heart. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. Listen to the passion. Listen to the emotion in those verses. In the Hebrew, the word here is sema. 
is used 56 times in the Old Testament, and it's a commanding word. It's not kind of like, did you hear me? It's a very, very authoritative word. In Deuteronomy 6, it's used, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. There's an urgency, a directness. Hear what I'm about to say as Solomon speaks to his children. So let me recap. The book of Proverbs is known for its rich wisdom. However, it's also known for its deep, passionate call, the call of a father to his child. So now we're going to start to specialize in Proverbs, and we're about to discuss what Proverbs says about humility and pride. I've subtitled this. See, the really good speakers, they can just leave that kind of thing up there, but you have to, I have to have subtitles. Subtitled attacks. Proverbs attacks the topic of humility and pride in two ways, with instruction and emotion. This is where Proverbs reveals both the mind of God and the heart of God. This is where we get to see, we're going to first start with the, heart, with the instruction of God or the, heart of, or the mind of God. Proverbs 11, 12, 11, 2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, and with the humble is wisdom. So it's like the, the, the law of gravity that we talked about before. If you take a ball and you drop it, it's going to fall. If you practice pride, you will fall. However, grow in humility and you'll grow in wisdom. This is God's instructing us through Solomon, where we may seek humility. That is the way of wisdom. God says, I've seen it played over and over again a billion times, seven billion times. Resist pride or be disgraced. So let's try another verse. Proverbs 12:9. Better to be lowly and have a servant than to play a great man and lack bread. Here's a comparative statement. Better is this than that. Be lowly and be humble with what you have. Don't boast about uh, being, uh, uh, big things that you don't have. And don't make things up. So what's going on here? What's, what's going on with this person who's, who's making things up? Why is this pride? Well, we've all been given gifts and talents, and we have opportunities, and we add hard work to those opportunities. But ultimately, ultimately, God is the one who blesses us. So no matter how smart we are, no matter what our degree is in, no matter what occupational course we choose, it's God that blesses us. And as such, we need to be content with what, what we have, demonstrating faith in what God's given us. If we're not content, we're ultimately not content with what God has, and our issue is with Him. Therefore, Proverbs 12.9 says, be happy with what God's given you, and don't make up things or put on airs. Because contentment is an indication of being humble and accepting God's provision, and arrogance is questioning what God is trying to give you or fool others into thinking that God has given you what you think you deserve. And the passage here is instructing us, this is better than that. Humility and gratefulness are better than boastfulness and envy. Let's do one more. Proverbs 22.4. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Solomon is saying, my son, do you want real wealth? Do you want honor that is lasting? Then pursue humility and pursue the fear and reverence of the Lord. And this instruction comes to the man who we know through the book of Ecclesiastes pursued every form of pleasure, 
every form of happiness that could be found. And he found them all vanity, fleeting, like the wind that blows from one place to another. But he sees humility after all of that. He sees humility as something to pursue. So Solomon reveals the mind of God about pride and humility through instruction. But there's another way that Proverbs wants us to understand humility, and that's by hearing the heart of God. Proverbs is not an emotionless, dry textbook. God has feelings. And we know this because the Bible educates us on numerous verses where we hear that God burns with anger or that God rejoices to the point of gladness and singing. God smiles. God has emotions, and all of them are perfectly expressed. So let's see them in pride, in Proverbs. <laughs> um, emotion, the heart of God, Proverbs 3, 33 through 34. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Towards the scorners, he is scornful, but the humble, but to the humble he gives favor. So here we begin to see the Lord's heart, where God bestows his blessing and his curses, his favor and his scorn. Scorn is defined as the belief that someone or something is worthless or despicable or held in contempt. The feeling or belief that someone is worthless or despicable or held in contempt. What we get is a sense of holding someone in ultimate disdain. Why is that bad? Well, if we decided that someone is worthless or contemptible, what are we really doing? When we do that, are we standing in the place of God? Maybe better said, are we sitting on the judgment seat of God? So let me boil down a long extended study of the throne of God. The throne of God is not a couch. The throne of God is not a love seat. It's not a sofa. The throne of God has space for one person, and that person is God. That throne is holy, and its judgment is perfect, and it's that way because it's the place of the one and only, the one alone who is righteous and just. There is no room on that judgment seat for me or you or any created being. So let me ask, for us to hold someone in contempt, to judge them as worthless, is that humble? If we, in full view of the God's throne, scorn or judge others, is that lowly or is that arrogant? That's why Proverbs 3.34 says that God, God scorns the scorner. So let's look at another verse, Proverbs 8.13. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. So there's nothing veiled about this verse. God hates pride. He hates arrogance. God lumps them both in with evil and perversion. Now look at how, let's, and, and look at how in that verse, God drops the, first person, the third person and he goes right into the third per, first person. So I, I picture it going something like this. So Solomon's at his writing table, right? And he's, he's writing down some Proverbs. And God's kind of looking over his shoulder with his kind of hands on his shoulder. He's watching Solomon write. And Solomon's going, the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. The hatred of evil. And at that point, God begins to lose patience. 
moves Solomon out of the way, takes the pen out of his hand, and goes first person on us. Pride and arrogance in all caps, and the way of evil and perverted speech, I hate. Okay, so maybe it didn't exactly go like that. But when he says he hates pride, he's not speaking like we do, because we use the word hate all the time. Like, don't you hate it when you don't get a close parking spot at the grocery store and it is raining? Or, and this happened recently in our house, don't you hate it when you get carry out and they mess up your order and they leave out the waffle fries? Well, that's not hate-worthy. In this passage, is not talking about the inconvenient, the annoying and inconvenient details of life. That's the stuff that God, who is love and walks in love and anger with perfect wisdom, has decided that he hates. These actions, these behaviors are so vile, so reprehensible, that it causes God, God who is love, who is long-suffering, who is patient, who has loved us so much that he gave his only son for us, tells us that he hates this. And what is this? It's pride and it's arrogance. The Hebrew word here is translated sanity, and it's reserved for a perverse mouth, lying tongue, injustice, taking advantage of the weak, sin, and pride. God hates those things, but only those things. God holds at a very high level what he has decided to hate, and he hates them. So let's not miss the first part of this verse. God is asking us to join him in hating evil and pride. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Why? If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, then we need to learn to hate sin to be wise. And the reason is because the deeper we get into the, well, the th deeper I get into the theological pool, the more I need to consult the people who are smarter than me and have, have, have proven the test of time. So I think Charles Spurgeon gives us an answer in a prayer. Spurgeon says, This day, my God, I hate sin, not because it damns me, but because it has done thee wrong. To have grieved my God is the worst grief to me. Let me read that again. This day, my God, I hate sin, not because it damns me, but because it has done thee wrong. I have grieved my God. To have grieved my God is the worst grief to me. So Spurgeon captures the essence of what our hatred should be towards sin. Our hatred towards sin should emanate from our love of God, our desire to honor him, to obey him, to respect him. And Lord, may we learn to hate things that you hate, but only those things that you hate, because we love you so much. So we talked about God calling us to wisdom through Proverbs, that it's an instructional call and an emotional plea. We've seen that humility holds a, a special place in God's heart, while pride is one of the few things that evokes the hatred of God. We've gotten this far without defining humility. So let's look at doing that. So what are some of the, what's the definition of humility? Well, first of all, let's start off with some misunderstandings of humility. So 
First of all, what is humility? Well, humility is not thinking of yourself as worthless, okay? It's not discounting the value of everything you do. It's not rejecting things that you do well. So anybody ever heard of a, of a track star by the name of Usain Bolt? Okay, I'm going to flash a picture up of him. Okay. Um, so Bolt holds the world and Olympic records in the 100-meter dash. He won the gold medal for the 100 and 200 meters, not in one Olympics, not in two Olympics, but in three straight Olympics. And I believe in all of those Olympics, not only did he win those, he never lost a heat. This guy's fast, okay? So, so let's talk to him. Let's ask him a question. You know, Mr. Bolt, you're really fast. Bolt answers, well... It's really nothing. Compared to a gazelle, I'm, I'm not very fast. Compared to a cheetah, I look like I'm standing still. You know, and, and I got bad grades in math. Okay, is that humility? No, that's really a break with reality. He's fast. It's just true. So, so just discounting what we do isn't really pride. Thinking of yourself as, as, as worthless is not only an accurate view, it's a non-biblical view. So another uh, misconception is false humility. So let's go back to theologian Usain Bolt. Mr. Bolt, you're really fast. He says, oh, that, not really. I, I didn't get out of the blocks very well, and I kind of eased up at the end, and the competition wasn't nearly as good this year, but do you, re do you really think I'm fast? Okay, that's not humility. That's false humility. Um, it's not real, it's fake, and it's what I call kind of fishing for a compliment. So the third misconception is humility being a doormat. Well, a doormat is a person who's treated poorly or unfairly for numerous reasons, none of them valid. Therefore, a doormat will spend their lives giving nothing because they don't understand their true and real identity in Christ. Actually, God has given everyone in this church gifts and talents that he wants you to share. Um, so, and he's given them for his glory and our good. So if you consider grace your church home, that's awesome. But do not keep your gifts under wraps. We're glad that you're part of this church family, and we're excited to be able to see what God has given us through you. So... Okay, we get it. Humility is not being worthless. It's not false humility. It's not being a doormat. What is humility? I thought you'd never ask. And you've waited really patiently. So I'm going to give you two definitions. First of all, personally, I love C.S. Lewis's definition of humility. <clears throat> humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So when you look at a picture that you're in, a group picture that you're in, what do you do? Well, the first thing is you look at yourself, right? And then what do you think? Oh, my, I'm not smiling, or my eyes are closed, or I look stupid, or I got something on my tooth, or whatever. Okay. Or is it, hmm, my goodness, God, you did a really good job on that one, didn't you? Okay, so the first one, why is that one pride? Well, the first reaction is having an undue, an undue uh, preoccupation with yourself. 
it's immediately going to yourself. It's thinking about yourself a lot. Okay? The second one, well, the second one's, the second one, you're hopeless. So what would a humble reaction be? Well, let, let's, let's go, let's, let's, uh, let's do a lab here. If I could get a group, there we go. So this was a group I was in a long time ago. You can tell because I had hair. <clears throat> so I remember that group. I remember that group with the fondest thoughts. We really became close. Uh, we grew in grace during that time. I remember how we challenged each other. I remember how I challenged Beth Mariella. Oh, wait a minute, we won't go into details. But we learned how to use our gifts and to serve each other. And God really blessed me through that group. Now, C.S. Lewis isn't denying that I'm in that picture. What Lewis is doing is he's denying that I'm the center of that picture. What Lewis is saying is we're not the center. And you can see that by the picture. Darlene Schmidt is. I'll leave that up just one more second. I have to say this. It's the only picture I've ever seen my daughter lean into the picture. But okay. So Lewis's definition, um, so what, what, is, what is pride? By Lewis's definition, well, let me do, let me do one more thing. True humility. Let me give a second definition, and it's, it's, um, it's mine. So let's, true humility is living with a God-oriented view of myself. True humility is living with a God-oriented view of myself. So let's pick that apart. I'll put some Bible re references up here that you can look up later. But God made me for his purpose and for his pleasure, not for mine. God needed to send a Savior to redeem me and to purchase me back. Therefore, I live a life of gratefulness. I live as a son of the Most High God, but I live as one aware of sin and my need for grace every moment. Those are just taken from those re references. That's a God-defined God definition of us. So if I live by that definition, a God-oriented view of myself, I'm free from being a doormat because I know that I'm a child of God. I'm free from the control and the changing opinions of others because I'm controlled by the unwavering love of God. I'm free from slavery of others' expectations, others' judgments, others' hurtful words, texts, social media posts, because what's written here is unchanging, it's unfailing, and it's inerrant. If I live by that definition, my day is filled with gratefulness for God. My thoughts are overwhelmed by a God who loves me beyond what I can comprehend. And I stand before God's throne undone. So that is humility. Let's look at pride. So to look at pride, let's take Lewis's, Lewis's definition and kind of flip it upside down. I think of myself often or exclusively. I need to be the center of the discussion and the last word. I turn every conversation to be about me, either inside my head or vocally. For instance, the weather. Did you hear it's going to rain or snow? Ugh, I know, and I have all these errands to run. Okay. Someone else's sickness. 
I just got a text that Jane has cancer. Oh my, I don't know what I'd do if I got that kind of news. Hmm. Sunday morning, there's Sam. He's going through a real rough patch. Yeah, I don't want to get caught up in that conversation with him. I'm getting hungry. It's all about me, 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 me. Whether it's positive or negative, I've become the center of the universe. So let's take my definition and flip it upside down. Pride is not having a God-prescribed view of myself. If, I, if, if my self-defined view is not based on God, about what God says and about what God thinks, then I need to find another standard. Where am I going to find that? Well, if I have really good quiet times, I'm up. But if I miss one or two or 17, what happens? What about determining it by my relationships? My wife and I, we didn't fight today, but what about tomorrow? Who knows? But what I really want to do, what I want to establish my joy, my happiness, and my satisfaction is by comparing myself, my children, my vacations, my career with Facebook. That is where I can anchor my soul. That's a joke. <laughs> Pride is a cruel taskmaster. It's a very hard taskmaster. So that brings us to the last point. The lessons of pride and humility hold a special place because they're not something we do, but they're something that we become. There are verses in Proverbs about unjust scales, about entering into agreements and financial contracts. There are Proverbs about how to treat your cattle and how to treat your different, uh, children. Those are different. And even table matters in front of the king. But we see these names and these titles pepper the pages of Proverbs. Titles like the proud, the humble, the scorner, the lowly. They transition us from a don't do this and don't do that to a be this and don't be that. There are Proverbs that are do's and don'ts. They address our behavior and they're in God's word to protect us. But there are Proverbs that in essence are saying become this. And, and don't become that. These are character verses. They're calling us to become something by the power and the grace of God. They go beyond telling us to behave a certain way that honors God because they call us to become like God. They call us to become like Jesus. Now, I have four children. Two of them work in the financial field, which is more of my family tree. And two of them are in the medical field, and that follows my wife's DNA. And I don't look at them differently because of their field of work or their job title, because of what they do. What I care most about is what they become. Third John verse 4 says, I have no greater joy, I have no greater joy than to hear that my, my children are walking in the light, they're walking in the truth. I could care less if they're a butcher or baker or candlestick maker as to who they have become. I care less about what is their occupation than who is their preoccupation. And that is God's heart. That is God's pleading heart towards us. 
Remember Proverbs 1.8, hear my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. So we've climbed a mountain this morning, and we've learned a lot. We've learned about the author of Proverbs and his purpose. We've learned what, what the book and therefore God says about pride and humility. And we have a working definition of humility. And lastly, we know why pride and humility are so important. Now we face a fork in that trail. <clears throat> we have a choice now to take one or the other. One of those forks is to ignore. We ignore that pleading voice of God to listen, to heed that cry of God, or the other path, which is application. Now, the path of application looks, looks more difficult, only because it is, because that path is filled with the challenges and obstacles that come in the form of questions, questions like, am I arrogant? Am I scornful? Am I judgmental? Am I proud? Is that who I've become? Or are you growing in humility? Are you quick to forgive, swift to see your own faults? Are you quick to repent and ask forgiveness? So let's try to take what we've learned and apply it to our lives with gospel applications. God scorns the scornful, but he, give, but he gives grace to the humble. What, are we guilty of scorn? Do we scoff judgmentally at, let's say, anyone who drives faster or slower than us on the highway? You just don't get in my way, right? Someone who takes too long to start at the green light or someone who dares to honk behind me because I took an extra heartbeat to pull out after the, the light turns green. Guilty on all of those and a lot more. Do we judge our boss's decisions, usually negatively? Civil servants there to serve us, but they're doing something that makes no sense to us. Are we judgmental of them? Coworkers who are not meeting our expectations or pulling their own weight. Have you found yourself in any of these categories? Don't these people fall into the imagio Dei, the image of God? Aren't they all created in the image of God? And yet that's how we treat them. Okay, what about people who hold differing political views. Do you judge them? Do they anger you? So in my own heart, I know I, I, I drop people kind of who are in a, a kind of a, a opposing political positions in me. I, I drop them into two buckets. Okay. First, either you're political, either you're pitiful and you're ignorant because you're not as enlightened as I am. Or you're a dangerous messenger of Satan and his legions. I don't have a third bucket. That's where it stops. But isn't there a third category? Isn't there room for a fellow traveler who's in a different place, who's loved by God and accepted by me? Can't we find that in humility? And do you find any, yourself in any of these statements? What about our church family? The music's too loud. Turn it up. More theologically rich hymns. I want more of the stuff from the radio. 
we would solve all these things. Just play my Spotify channel. So let me get more specific and more personal. The pastoral team revisited marriage, divorce, and remarriage about a year ago, and we were wrestling from, in that topic for months. <clears throat> um, the Scripture is clear about the topic, but applying it to the endless permutations of life was very, very challenging. So we stress-tested the position paper, and the, as we did that, a phrase would keep coming up. Okay, but what if this happened? Or what about that situation? And often, we didn't like the results. But Scripture dictated a certain position. There was a lot of debate, a lot of arguing, and a lot of challenging each other. There was a lot of opportunity for what I used to call copying a tude. I'm not seeing any recognition, that's fine. Okay, I can be opinionated, and I would aggressively vocalize my opinions. That's a really clean way of saying I would argue and yell and in those meetings. Several times after those meetings, I would be concerned about my relationship or my feelings towards another pastor. Immediately afterwards, I would talk to that pastor either by my initiation or theirs, and the conversation would continue about that topic for five minutes or so. But then the transition would come something like this. What about us? Are we okay? Usually there was nothing there, but sometimes there was. And just the act of saying that, of asking that question, of valuing the relationship that we had followed up was enough to reconcile things. It was enough to restore us. We might offer a different opinion. We might come to a different opinion but we refuse to differ in respect. So I don't know about you, but I've learned a lot from this study. A lot of stuff I didn't want to know, but it's good for me to know. One of the things I learned is I don't fit on God's throne. And there are two truths that I need to take to heart that are going to help me change. First is, our Father's heart should define our heart towards each other. Our Father's heart should define our hearts towards each other. God is instructing us on humility and pride in Proverbs because we need it. We need that instruction. He's saying, the throne of judgment does not fit you. You are to bow before it, not sit in it. I've learned that I'm the happiest. I'm the most at peace. I'm walking in the Spirit, and I'm most fruitful when I'm sitting on the lap of the one who sits on the throne. When I'm on Daddy's lap, life is good. When I'm on Daddy's throne... Not good for anybody. So that brings us to two practical application steps. What do we need to reconcile? Who, uh, to, with whom do we need to reconcile? And what do we need to bring to God in repentance? Two questions to take home, or two questions to work on here. God hates evil. We have read that God hates perverted speech. God hates pride. God hates arrogance. God hates wickedness. God hates abortion. He hates oppression of the weak. God hates prejudice. But have I forgotten, have we forgotten, that God hates my sin too? I'm quick to judge, to see the shortcomings of others. But my ability to avoid my own sin is epic. God hates me putting myself 
at the center of his story.